0: From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello everyone, my name is Raj Nation and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast growing startups work with me because they wanna become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies
1: and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone from Denver, Colorado. He is the CEO of Verblio. Please welcome, Steve
2: Well, Thank you, Rajiv. It is good to be here.
1: I'm happy to have you here. He is Steve Pockross, the CEO of Verblio. What is Verblio? It's a multimedia content creation platform that powers the modern content marketer as well as the modern SEO agency. They've got a network of 3,000 US-based writers who are subject matter experts in every industry from astrology to zoology. They've got an easy-to-use platform offering flexibility, quality, and speed to businesses and agencies who need a reliable, trusted partner to develop content. They drop over 70,000 pieces of unique content each year for thousands of companies in over 15 different countries. Verblio was awarded two Inc. 5000 growth company awards. They have done all of this completely bootstrapped. And today, we are here to talk with Steve about scaling a labor-driven marketplace, because that's what Verblio is, it's a labor-driven marketplace platform. So Steve, can you let our listeners know why this is on in your mind and why this is important to you?
2: I think it's on my mind for a couple of reasons. One is the future of marketing and the other is the future of work. And in the future of marketing, I think there is a, There's a big problem to solve, which is how do you create quality content at scale with subject matter expertise that has not been cracked before? And so that's what we're striving to do. We're striving to make this process, which is inherently filled with friction, as easy as possible, as enjoyable, but also producing levels of quality so that content marketers can build the level of quality that they're looking for when they want it. And ideally, enabling them with something new to think about content as a competitive advantage versus a must have. On the future of work side most of technology businesses i spend a lot of time in silicon valley our focus is on getting the people out of the business and basically any time that humans are involved it becomes annoying to your actual business model as opposed to an additive and i think the next wave of evolution of businesses is how do you bring in skilled talent into your platform to create something new and more powerful that works on both sides of the marketplace not just to create a better offering to your end client but also that works better for the next wave of workers. How do you get them from being the commoditized labor pool that is Uber drivers into a skilled talent that this can actually be a profession and uh, a level of work that's interesting and compelling for generations to come?
1: We're going to dive a whole lot more into that over the course of this conversation, and I think it's it's probably the best topic we could have to kick off our first episode here of season 15 but before we go into all of that let's learn a little bit more about steve the man the legend so steve you are a big fan of ultimate frisbee how did you get into it and how often do you play and what do you like about it
2: the so i love ultimate frisbee it is at the core of uh it's at the core of how i run my company as well which is uh the spirit of ultimate frisbee is kind of my management style uh, I showed up at campus at Wesleyan University in 1990, and our team was, uh, we were a Division III school, but they didn't have different divisions for Ultimate at the time. So a couple things happened. One is I had been a lacrosse goalie in high school, and the reason I took that terrible, terrible position, which I do believe is the worst position in all of sports, because you have no pads.
1: You get the hardest ball possible thrown right at you at like 90 miles per
2: hour. With no protection. The scores are like... (laughs) 18 to 16. So if you block three of the 20 goals, then you're successful. It is a terrible. (laughs) So I took that because I couldn't uh, make any of the more uh, prestigious positions on the team. Uh, And I think it helped get me into my school. And when I showed up on campus, the coach was like, hey, we always need backup lacrosse goalies. Are you ready for this? And I saw the guys were throwing even harder than my high school guys. And I knew I had to get out of that. And the second thing was that uh, Wesleyan had the number one team in the country as Division 3 at the time, and it just immediately appealed to me. Here you have a sport that's competitive, that is, really has an ethos of spirit of the game, where everybody's kind of rooting for each other and cheering for each other. Uh, but also, also non-contact involves no hard projectile ob- objects being thrown at me. Uh, so I started that in nineteen. <laughs> And that's
1: part of your management style. Don't draw projectile objects. <laughs> wow!
2: If you could boil it down to just that. <laughs> uh, so I still play. Well, okay. today. So, now I play. Sorry, league. continue
1: you on go. there. I cut you off. Go ahead.
2: That's right. Uh, now I play a lot of leagues. It keeps me inspired. Uh, there's you know less of the forty somethings playing every year, so we're uh, constantly challenged to to chase twenty year olds. If you want to stay in it. Uh, but last year, my uh, two years ago, my 40s and over team made it to nationals in Chicago, uh, right next to you. So uh, that's uh, it's fun to be able to play competitive level anything when uh, as you get older.
1: Yeah, I think and the operative part of that phrase is the as you get older, when you feel like some party still has still got it in some way.
2: Yes, I think we all just want to be moving forward in some way at all times, especially given these times progress and consistency just feels even better than ever before.
1: It actually reminds me a lot of, I'm sure I'll have him on at some point, uh, the CEO of this company called Swish house that started out of Chicago recently over the past, uh, a year or so. And it is, I'm sure you're familiar with like hit training, right? Like uh, workout classes, but think of it, it's hit, but via basketball. Mm. So it is, it's like going to basketball practice in high school. So you like, it's, drills, it's shooting, competition, and it, the whole goal is to help you get back into basketball shape, which for any of us who played growing up was what we remember as like the best shape of our lives. And it, it combines that like nostalgia effect of just shooting hoops and not having to worry about like tearing your knee because you're playing on blacktop and the person, you know, across from you is playing too hard and you're a little bit older. And uh, it just, it has that same feeling of like progress moving forward and, and the I still got it.
2: Perfect. Just like that. And there's something inspiring that makes it a lot easier to exercise if you're chasing someone or someone else is chasing you.
1: I like that. I like that. I think there's probably a good business analogy tied in there as well. Now, another interest of yours is something that I have never heard of before. Uh, I've heard of downhill skiing. I've heard of cross-country skiing. What on earth is telemark skiing?
2: Oh, man. The Chicago Flatlanders. Uh, so, teleskiing is basically doing cross-country skiing uh, going downhill. And so, you're basically, you, they, uh, a super cheesy expression to free your heels. So, your heels aren't attached to your skis. And so, in order to make your turn, you basically have to go into a lunge at an angle. So, uh, you're kind of having a much larger oh. arc and yeah. you're and you've got one knee touching the ground as you're making your big turn, and then you jump and basically go into a lunge going the other way. And so by doing that, well, first of all, you feel the mountain a lot more. You get, like, get to carve the terms, and it's just really fun. It's a lot more like snowboarding. You get that big arc on your turns. Uh, the second is that uh, it's a much more fun workout, and it doesn't have that skiing effect of just ripping your knees apart.
1: Well, perhaps a good segue from there is carving the mountain on your terms which I feel like is what you have been doing with Verblio, you know, carving the proverbial mountain on your terms, and that is building this marketplace company. And it's actually not even your first effort in the marketplace world. You also had to go with LiveOps, which helped create call centers at scale, another type of labor-driven marketplace. Can you talk through your experience with LiveOps and maybe the one or two main things you learned coming out of that company?
2: Sure. It was a pretty formative experience for me. So I was with LiveOps from 2004 till 2012. Uh, it was a pretty high-flying company. We went from about $8 million of revenue when I was there to $150 million in a very short period of time. Uh, there were a bunch of the original Netscape guys who were uh, as part of the dev team and you know, a quality Silicon Valley ride, which I was very fortunate to have, and I learned a ton from it. So we were innovating a lot of things. So we had this combination of a marketplace of labor, home-based call center agents, 20,000 of them. And then we had a call, we had a soft, basically a SaaS platform that was in the cloud that could deliver calls to any individual's house uh, by whatever performance metrics we could find based on whatever data that we came up with. The the data system that we were using there was invented by a guy named Lloyd Tabb who went on to found Looker using the same principles, which then sold to Google for a couple million dollars. Um, Really fascinating stuff. So we were trying to figure out what to do with this. So first of all, what we should have done with this is invent Uber. We should have really focused on taxis instead of call centers. We just didn't know that at the time. So choosing your market is really important. And that was one of my big lessons was this is a really hard way to earn your business is to call center services on top of this platform. The second is if you stay in it long enough and it's making sense, people will come up with terms like SaaS, cloud, marketplace. None of these things, well, marketplace existed, but crowdsourcing, basically all these terms got invented while we were there and trying to plug away at it. And the third was the power of this combination. You put together a marketplace of talent and a SaaS platform, and there's so much more than you can do, I think, even beyond what people are thinking. And I think this is going to be the next wave of business innovation, or at least one of them. And so I'll give one example that I thought was really powerful. One of the reasons that I've been obsessed with how to evolve this concept to the next phase. So I was working, uh, so I was a VP of business development and strategy, and I was in charge of developing new business lines with this combination of Marketplace and SaaS, which fits very well with what I do today. Uh, and so one of my vendors at the time was, uh, was a large insurance company. And I asked them, what would it take to become my client um, to take your insurance calls? And they said, all you have to do is have a giant network of licensed insurance agents. And they cost about $8,000 a year. They have to go through all sorts of certifications. You have to do the routing based on every state because you can only take the calls in states where you're licensed. So it's a big, complex operational nightmare that nobody has cracked the code. Uh, And that's why nobody in insurance is is driving to inbound calls. So it all has to be outbound where you control when your audience has to listen to you versus when they want to talk to you. So if you could do this inbound, you could really invert the entire model and do direct marketing and drive calls inbound. And so what we did was we asked all of our call center agents, mostly stay-at-home moms across the U.S., how many of you are licensed agents? And somewhere between 300 to 500 of our call center agents were licensed agents, which means that we had a marketplace that probably the largest licensed agent call center in the United States, maybe the world, and didn't know it. And that's the power of marketplace to me. And so we started our insurance business, which became a huge line for us. And so the power is that within every marketplace, if you curate based on skills, you track and segment your workforce based on their experience, their skill levels and what they can do, you can create customized programs so that we could be the biggest legal writing company. We could be the biggest medical writing company. And there could be sub pockets within your marketplace where you can create these programs. And I I think that's cool. And that's what got me hooked.
1: And is that to say that because you have people on the other end, you are opening yourself up to potential like other things they may do that is not the direct thing you hired them for, but you but could create that opportunity?
2: Exactly. They should lead you. If you create a platform and a marketplace that are working, somebody should be telling you, you could do with that better than anything that you've ever thought of.
1: Interesting. Okay, well, I have a client right now who is a labor-driven marketplace, and I hope they're listening very closely to what you just said. Um, you end up becoming CEO of Verblio. You did not found the company, but you took over a few years ago. Can you talk through how you got introduced to the company, why you wanted to, you know, why you were brought on, and what opportunity you saw?
2: Sure. So I grew up in Denver. And then I left for about 20 years, went all around, spent a lot of that in Silicon Valley. Uh, When I came back, I met a lot of the local startup scene and was lucky to to be introduced to the founder of the founding CEO of of Verblio. Now I'm getting my names, Verblio LiveOps, stuck in my head. And in an early phase was he was trying to raise money and he was looking to the top marketplace companies to raise money from. And we were talking about how to do that uh, when I first got here. Uh, and then we just stayed in touch, so it's really a good marketing like it's a good networking story. You have conversations because you're interested you're curious about the same things you're passionate about the same things, and then you keep in touch, and sometimes it works out and it all goes in your right favor and so I was lucky and uh lucky and fortunate to have that experience early. Then I bopped around the Colorado startup scene for quite some time uh mostly working as kind of starting up new divisions for startups or being the right-hand person to the founding CEO at another company. So that's a pretty risky line of business, which is if you're starting up a new line of work for a startup, it means that their original line of business isn't growing fast enough or they're uh, so they need something else to save the company or they're willing to kind of take a high risk. Can you build something quickly? So in order for that to work out is a lot of things. I think that's a fascinating line of business, but it also means that you don't really have control of your destiny. It forces outside of you. Uh, your your new business line is going well, and you just don't have enough runway to get there. Every new venture takes some time. So I basically said to myself that next time I want to run the whole show, whether it succeeds or fails, I want it all on my shoulders, and I'm dying to get back to marketplace businesses. Just at the time that the CEO uh, was a journalist, and he basically said, uh, I'm staying, I'm actually stepping down. I want somebody who knows how to scale marketplaces, turn them into something more powerful. Is anyone in the local Denver area ready to do this? So. Uh, that worked out awfully well. That doesn't often doesn't happen to perfect
1: well. kind of uh, perfect storm there that came together. Now it sounds like then that your attraction was marketplace, not necessarily. Oh, I want to get into the content game. It was, hey, I see a real opportunity because it's an attractive marketplace.
2: That was number one for sure. Uh, I've always, I mean. So I went to, I got my MBA in uh, in in marketing and did a lot of direct marketing along the way. And I'm pretty obsessed with marketing as well. And the fact that I could transition into like the point of the spear for marketing was just like an added, this is, makes it all better because you want to be in marketplaces for what it does as opposed to just like the, the guts of the system. So it was definitely a draw.
1: Yeah. So I guess I walked into my next question, which is, Uh, from the founder perspective or the CEO perspective, if someone is starting a a marketplace company, do you think it's important to not only understand the mechanics, but also have deep knowledge of that area of the marketplace? Or is it fine to just know, Hey, I I know the mechanics of how a business like this works. and, And you know what law looks like a pretty attractive industry because they have this going for them, but I don't necessarily know much about law myself.
2: That's a really interesting question. I have been asked that before. And so my initial thought is, so most startups go into an area that the founder has never been in before whatsoever, or at least the the Silicon Valley style. I think more of the successful ones are like you gradually take somewhere where you have expertise and build upon that. But there's so many examples of really just going into a new industry and understanding it. To me, it's the mentality and knowing where, what expertise you need to bring in with you. So it's less of the, the marketplace mechanics that I think are important versus the empathy for both sides of your marketplace. So I think most people get into marketplace businesses because they have empathy for or empathy for their clients and are excited to provide value to the clients as opposed to the supply of labor that is going into the other side of the marketplace and making it a really fulfilling kind of ongoing opportunity for them because our company was started by a journalist, I feel like Verblio was born with the spirit of doing right by writers in the DNA of the company, which really appealed to me. Uh, so I think it's really empathy and interest in both sides of the marketplace that's more important than the mechanics because somebody out there knows how to do that and you can find them to help you.
1: Well, let's dig a little bit more into these mechanics now. Obviously, the topic today is scaling a labor-driven marketplace, but before we figure out the scaling aspect, what do you think are the biggest challenges in first just building up that marketplace in the first place?
2: So I think the surprising piece of it for most people will be that finding the supply of labor is not hard. Um, Finding the clients is hard. The supply of labor, there are so few good work from home, remote, flexible opportunities for freelancers, that if you build a great product with great opportunities for them, they will come. That uh, I've never had a hard time in any marketplace that I've worked for finding a supply of great talent. The challenge is curating that talent to make sure they provide what you want them to do and they deliver to your clients. And so... There are a lot of marketplaces that deeply pride themselves on the number of people that are freelancing in their marketplace. They'll say, I have 10,000, I have 50,000 workers. Uh, I think that that's a sign of lack of quality and lack of curating the marketplace in order to understand how many you really need to to solve quality at scale. So the first piece of it is that finding talent is not that hard if you build something that's compelling for them. I think the second piece of it is that it's easy to deliver a general service at scale. So the first principles of of marketplace is can I have availability and scalability of my marketplace at a flexible price at something that's affordable? I think there are a lot of companies that do that and that just reaches this maximum point where at some point you don't need generalized content anymore. You don't need generalized call center agents. You need specific subject matter experts So making to that next frontier kind of the crossing the chasm of the content world and all of marketplaces to me is how do you get it to turn to quality at scale? And I think all of us who have worked in tech world know the iron triangle of like you can have these three things. You can have speed, you can have quality, uh, and you can have price, but you can't have all three. I think you can if you put these things together right, and I think if you limit your mind to just having speed and uh, and scale, that you're not reaching the full potential of what you can do with these two models.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, and specifically in the the content world, I know you know I used to uh, an SEO agency that I used to work with, meaning like I had hired, and they were doing some content. The challenge I kept running into was they didn't have the industry expertise. And so I could say, hey, I I would like a blog post on this topic. But then what I would get back was something that I would end up having to like rewrite anyways, because I'm like, well, no, this isn't the advice. This isn't isn't actually even good advice. Uh, (laughs) that I want to have my name behind. (laughs) Um, And so not only was the quality not there, but then the speed was significantly, there was no speed. It It was slow because I had to end up redoing it myself. And it's not like I had time that day. It would be like two weeks later, I'd look at it and redo it.
2: And then they would go back
1: and optimize it for SEO. So uh, I think I've probably faced the pain of, of trying to go a different route in terms of being a, a customer. Now, you mentioned that getting the labor is pretty easy as long as you build you know, a platform and say, hey, I've got this thing. Do you see that as like you just kind of almost send a pre-launch email saying, hey, put your information down if you want to be added when we go live, or is it you have to show them the platform for them to be interested to, to want to be on, on it? the labor
2: side so uh, the key to me is showing that you have the work and that it's good work and so the you let enough people in the door to make sure that they are all finding fulfilling opportunities if you bring in 100 people and there's one job you're going to lose that pool really quickly so and then i'll tell you like our other keys is we're thinking about what motivates our, our writers together so the first is you build it gradually you make you're very transparent with what the opportunity is uh and then What we do at Verblio is we have three kind of main levers of motivated writers. Uh, We also do video creation too. So as content creators, but most of them come from a writing background. So first is uh, you have to be competitive on pay. It has to be compelling. If they're looking at this as a commoditized job with commoditized prices, they're going to see this as as they're going to do commodity work. So you have to be fair and you pay for the level that you want to. So we pay the most of anybody in our field, and we do that with pride. Um, We want to. The second thing that we did differently, so we built a community, which is we have an online forum where all of our writers can hang out. They're all working from home. They want to share notes with each other and say what's going on. Some of it's really helpful to us. Like Some of it they're comparing other writing platforms and what they've learned there and sharing back. Some of it's like, how do you do well in the writing platform of Verblio and get ahead? which saves us a lot of time. We don't have to train as much. And some of it is just like, hey, how are the kids doing? Are you watching this TV show? This is the place I go to hang out. And so it's got kind of like a social platform element to visit as well. So the second is community. And the last piece is, uh, is passion and motivation. I think most writing companies are very command and control, which is here's your piece. If you've proven you're a financial writer, I will give you so many financial pieces until you can't take it anymore. And so part of the way that we thought about creating Verblio was to invert the model, which is that our writers choose our clients based on their interest level, their level of subject matter expertise, and their ability to perform for that client. And we think that is part of the main secret sauce. It helps keep our writers, it gives them passion. So they get to write about something new. So here's one fun, interesting fact. So we segment all of our clients by industry. We have 39 industries, and our 40th is other And 52% of our clients say other, which means, well, first, it means a couple of things. We have to be good at writing for niche verticals, and we also have to be able to write for the long tail. But that's the stuff that gets writers excited. You get to write about something new and something different to keep them motivated. Uh, It also keeps them out of the, uh, you know, the biz dev game where they're selling and they can just focus on the writing piece and uh, they know they can sell more if they focus on areas that uh, uh, clients that have their level of su- subject matter expertise and their style and becomes more uh, uh, just exciting as a way to build a career. Um, and I think the next step is how do you build a career doing this and give other opportunities as you can work your way up?
1: This is pretty interesting because first off, it sounds like there is more to this than just the functional use case of getting work, but like you create the community aspect, the social aspect out of it. So it's something that they're quote-unquote going to even if virtually to, to get they're extracting value out of it beyond just the direct transactional use case mm-hmm. so there's reason for them to hang around there's reason for them to champion the brand uh there's reason for them to not
2: leave exactly i mean i want this to be an exciting compelling to just part of my background my wife's a professional writer my mom's a professional writer she's her third book is coming out this month uh, my brother's a congrats professional to your mom. writer. I uh I want to go to my family dinners with pride and saying I'm doing the right thing for yeah really- I'm not screwing over your peers right <laughs> exactly
1: <laughs> okay so you mentioned that the pay the most competitive rate in the field and am part of what I want to touch on that is you mentioned with inverting the model that uh, you let the writers decide what projects might interest them does that mean where my confusion lies I should say is does that mean it creates a bidding process when you've got three people who are all really excited about the same project and then it perhaps does become a lowest bidder win?
2: Oh, right. So it's a complicated little mousetrap that we have to work out in order to make all of this works. And I think we played with every one of those and just like every, every great idea it takes a lot of iteration along the way. So one of our key features is we only have one price. We only pay writers one level. So there's no competing on price.
0: Huh.
2: We, you, don't believe in the concept of having one star writers, 10 star writers and somewhere in between, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to have someone who's the top level writer uh, and at (laughs) one fair price. So I think you're exactly right. I think that incentive system is weird. So we tried not to have it. And so what our writers do is they submit a full post to our clients. And so their competitive levels, they get there faster because of that. So our average turnaround time is only two days with quality writing, uh, which is very fast by industry standards. And so they basically see the client make a post. They're like, wow, that's something that I could write for. They submit the post and the client has the choice of saying, hey, this really hit the mark. I accept this piece. And then the transaction's done. Uh, I request edits. You're really close. Or I decline it. And in each case, we're asking for the client's feedback so that every writer who would come to them gets more attuned to their preferences. But the writers see that one post has already been submitted to a client and they can say, hey. I think I can write something better for them or they could say, hey, I think that might be good enough for this client. We'll see what they have to say.
1: Hmm. Let's talk about the other side of the market, right? Because you can't have all supply and no demand. Now you did say the first step is getting a good supply base, good, hmm. good labor ready, but they do need to have some jobs waiting for them. They can't just come on a platform and there's nothing to do. So how do you go about getting the customer base for this and is it a well, we did like a traditional cold email strategy is it uh like facebook ads is it SEO? it all the above
2: uh it's none of the above so uh mm. one of the other wonderful gifts that my founders gave to me is uh the gift of amazing organic traffic from having written great content for 10 straight years so One of the funny things about having a journalist as your founding CEO is that, you know, I spend my time totally different than him. He spends every single day writing a blog every single day from 2010 forward and has got incredible organic traffic and brought it through. So our focus is really living the the spirit of content marketing. We try to put as much great content out there. We build the brand. We rebranded two years ago yesterday uh, to Verblio from a brand that, uh, to really focus on the, the modern digital marketer from where the place started, which was just creating ongoing content that wasn't of, of, uh, that worked for SEO versus the end target. Uh, and only recently we've hired our first outbound salesperson full-time last month. And so, uh, 10 years of growth, we grew 300% over the last three years without any outbound sales. Uh, and then we play a smaller level on some of the other fields like, uh, paid marketing and things like that, but very little of our budget. And it's one of the things you can't do if you're uh, if you're a bootstrapped company. You have to figure out where you can invest the the limited budget you have because you're investing of where you're at as opposed to where you're about to be.
1: Okay, so you get an initial customer base going. You build up the marketplace. There is a difference between the building up of it and then the scaling of it. So then, and I would put it in layman's terms, it's like scale is when quote unquote, the machine is turned on.
2: Yeah, the flywheel. So
1: what, yeah, the flywheel effect. So what are some of those like sticks that are getting stuck in that flywheel that are present challenges towards the scaling up?
2: So really good question. The biggest challenge is, so our services like works really well, you know, is a, so we are vitamin, the, the content creation process is a pain in the butt like this is one of the main things that we're solving, which is that in order to create great content requires interaction on both sides. Even if you're paying us to help you, you have to download your preferences and your interest level and your subject matter expertise into the platform. So a writer like a great journalist with subject matter familiarity can write something for you, but it still means that you as a client have to do some work, which is one of the stickiest aspects, which is how do you pilot that and get them through the first three months If they do that, then we're good and they're going to stick with us forever. But we kind of have to train our clients, which makes uh, it's less the sales process versus once they get on board, the pilot process. So that's a nice kind of like we do it a lot better. We try to have a better customer experience on our platform. We think about UI design and all of those pieces along the way. The exciting part for us is, back to one of my original points, is content is a competitive advantage. Who wants to do content at scale that really sets them apart? So we have a legal SEO client right now called Rankings.io that came to us a couple years ago. They said, we need every piece of your content to be written by writers who have legal expertise or familiarity, and they all need to be edited by lawyers that's going to be able to set us apart. And then we can go to every single law firm in the industry and offer a solution that nobody else has. And so we've written over 4,000 pieces of legal content for them, all delivered on time with quality, that's helped differentiate them in the space, which I think is really cool and exciting. And my sales side, where that flywheel gets stuck, is there's no way to search online for who produces a ton of niche content or who wants to. (laughs) I'm looking for aspirational marketers versus existing business to steal.
1: Now, okay, so you mentioned you had success in law, writing about law and writing for law practices. How do you temper the, let's call it the temptation to say, oh, hey, we're having a ton of success in one specific, or you know, in one field. We have customers in all fields. We have a lot of success in this field. Let's actually just pivot and become purely a marketplace for only the field of law.
2: So, in a normal business, you would have to do that, right? There wouldn't be enough business to be there. You would try to be, especially as like a SaaS platform. If you were a SaaS platform alone, you would try to figure out how do I tailor or customize it down? I lower my target audience, and then I fully get there with their needs and my product. In a marketplace-driven business, you can create those sub-businesses without having to do a pivot. So the product itself, being the marketplace and the SaaS together, can deliver for any one of those verticals. So the pivot is really building a, an account team and a sales strategy, sales and marketing strategy to go after yeah. that, which is so powerful. So... My vision of Verblio is that we're going to have Verblio Legal. We're going to have Verblio Home Services, Verblio Real Estate. And each one of those will build up the same expertise because it's a very repeatable system. Uh, and the unique part is our sales and marketing team to say, we get your space, we're coming after you. We have all of the professionals that you're looking for and ready to deliver it. And the backend system just works broadly.
1: On that note, to this point, have you relied solely on the inbound you mentioned, the uh, existing content that's put out there to get customers, or, or do you have a, a sales team who's doing outbound as well at this point?
2: So our, uh, I hired a part-time VP of sales for the first time, our first outbound salesperson in March, and then hired him full-time in September. So this year we have started to do outbound. We really thought that we needed to nail the brand promise the, the brand, the brand promise of the product delivering what we said it was going to do and in uh, the content surrounding it before we got to that place. Uh, we are going much bigger into Outbound right now. And now that we know our niche and we believe we have the confidence and we also have all the reference uh, clients in order to get us there. And it's been really exciting. It's really strange to launch Outbound big during this time when everyone says this is a terrible time to launch Outbound. Uh, but the amount of it's pipeline... <laughs> yeah they still do the amount of pipeline that's come out of even the first several months is just remarkable and we've tried it before like i led some of it and kind of we we dabbled in it we had to have those critical elements there first before you we could do good outbound we had to have the confidence if your if your sales and marketing is leading your product then you're going to be in a tough place once you land those pilots
1: do you think this is a situation unique to verblio that you could wait several years before you turn down outbound or do you think that is applicable to any labor market place if, if they, you know, get the right mechanic set up from the beginning that they should, would you recommend, I should say, that they focus on inbound for a long time before they go into active outbound
2: zones? Uh, no, I would recommend that you have at least one steady source of clients coming in the door before you focus on, on turning off any immediate opportunities you have. So I, I just have an unbelievable gift that we had this amount of organic traffic that brought me yeah. a thousand new clients every year. A thousand new clients every year without doing sales is pretty insane. Yeah. Uh, and so, so you're not
1: necessarily saying that everyone, you're saying you guys had that opportunity so you see it. You're not recommending everyone should follow that. You're saying have a channel that feeds you.
2: I am. And then where content marketing feeds into that is that it's a hell of a cost-effective channel that continues to grow and pay back. Everyone calls it like the advertising is like, uh, advertising is quick and goes away and content marketing, uh, lasts forever. So the question is, when do you focus on content marketing? And which is to me is if you're a startup founder or you're at the beginning, which is to start early and at least have something consistently happening. So eventually you'll get there. Cause if you only stick with the paid or with the outbound, you'll never get there and you'll be like three years into it and you'll be completely addicted to your, uh, to your immediate hits.
1: I'm talking with Steve Pokross today to kick off season 15 here of Startup Hype Man, the podcast. We are discussing scaling a labor-driven marketplace. You know, I've got a few more questions here before we hit our wrap-up. Another question is, what is the necessity, or perhaps is it not a necessity, in this marketplace model that the transaction, like, like the sale, happens all online and doesn't, you know, doesn't necessarily require the involvement of a human to make the sale?
2: So the business was originally set up as a self-service marketplace where you did everything online. You signed up for your account, you paid for it on account, and that really works for about 90% of our clients. Uh, The bigger we get and the larger we're we're moving up market to clients that are depending on us for their business, the more that we've had to have those interactions in the sales channel. So we do have an inside salesperson that I haven't referred to before who's fabulous and uh, helps bring those people on board. I think you have to meet those clients where they want to meet you. Uh, This goes back to our whole tech doesn't like humans uh, to be part of the system whenever possible. Uh, And I think, you know, if, especially if you're working in all, two thirds of our revenue comes from digital marketing agencies that are people services business. So they work with their end clients. They care about them a lot. They want to make sure that we're delivering for them. So we will talk to anybody who wants to talk to us and we encourage everyone to take like a personalized demo versus getting funneled through the automated process.
1: I do think it's interesting though, like on the verblio pricing page, you lay it out first before the button of talk to a content expert comes up. So it's like, here's everything you need to know. Then if you're still confused, talk to us, as opposed to leading with talk to us is the number one thing we want you to do on this page. And I, I imagine that's intentional.
2: It is intentional. The hard part about that is the uh, the two funnels, which is we wanna funnel the people who are gonna have customized giant programs where this page makes no sense to them. So, like, we have a publisher who does twelve hundred unique articles with us every single month in four different verticals. I have to find a way to have them funneled to directly to talk to somebody. Can you create a custom program for me, while funneling everybody else who can be automated is uh, to the other channel? So, I'm working on the other side.
1: Okay. Now, staying on the same topic, do you think that the marketplace model can only be successful if a large portion, perhaps a majority of the sales are passive sales as opposed to needing the involvement of the account manager to, to make the sale happen?
2: I think that's how it scales. Like, until unless you can turn it into a platform, like every part of your your business, you bring in you're bringing the people wherever it needs to happen and then you automate everything else as much as possible. And in general, marketplace businesses need to lead with services and with people to figure out the point of the sphere, how do you solve it before the platform can build it afterwards? And I think the pricing page and in the, in the sales process is just another example of that.
1: Yeah. I want to come back to the pricing model that you have or, or the competitive pay model you have, I should say, to your writers. I think one of the struggles when you sell labor as opposed to selling a software product or physical product, whatever it might be, inventory really would be the word, um, is that what you are selling is someone's time at the end of the day. And typically the trade-off there is lower cost equals lower quality work. Mm -hmm. So I think the conundrum that is created is there's some idea of like acceptable market rate. and, And I think there's only so much price elasticity the market will accept. So, and at the same time, you need to be able to pay your people a good wage and net a profit on top of that. That way you can stay in business. So I know, I know you mentioned before, hey, we have the best rate. Uh, we, pay, we pay our writers great and we, we fully believe in that, which I think is awesome. But how do you balance that amidst these other mechanics of having a price that the market will accept and then still being able to turn profit at the end of the day?
2: That is uh, that is indeed the crux. Um, so uh, so we, we also charge brand premium prices. Um, so I think our, you know, we consider ourselves our, the premium brand in our space. So I think we're somewhere between 10 to 20% more and we pay our writers about the same of that. Um, so that we, we look at our pricing and we look at our writer pay every single year and we generally adjust both of them in unison so that our gross margins can stay uh, together. That's kind of our approach. You can only do that if you have a product that the question you have about your selling time, you're kind of selling time, but you're kind of selling the end product of that time as well, which is the the writer gets to choose how much time they spend on a product. The end product is the post that the, that the client gets. Maybe it's a 2,500 kind of like segment of an ebook. And so that's what they're paying for. And whether the writer spent four days on it or two hours and got the right level of quality is really up to the, the writer to figure out if this makes sense for them. So I am a super slow writer. This would be a terrible job for me. I'm also <laughs> as good as most of my writers. Um, and so this would never work. So there's a speed element to it as well. And uh, the third mark really complicated is the longer the post, the more individual research that a writer needs to put in on top of the of the inputs that the clients giving them and so we try to price in kind of this ethereal time to spend getting the right level of research for better posts too.
1: I think a appropriate follow up to that is how does verblio qualify success?
2: So the uh whether, uh, kind of I'm coming at it from this from the writer point of view and the client point of view like all marketplace answers means that all my answers are longer than your standard person because no of course yeah you
1: got to share both sides yeah
2: sorry. so the writer like what how do I find great writers and then like how do I know it's working for the clients uh are two different questions how do I know it's working for the writers is like so we have a super stringent there's an objective level to writing and there's a subjective level so the objective is like do you You know, do you have your grammar, your punctuations? Do you have your sentence structure? uh, All of that stuff down. So about 4.5% of our applicants, our writer applicants, pass that test. So they go into the bucket of kind of like they've at least have the core objective skills to be a verbally a writer. And then everything happens in our marketplace. How are you meeting our clients' needs? Are your clients accepting your posts when you write for them? And then the marketplace basically creates a virtuous cycle of figuring out who are the best writers where it's going to work for. Are you getting enough work to actually get it done? Are better writers funnel up and the writers that where it doesn't work for will go somewhere else. Um, on the client side, we're finding that success of if you're accepting the post, you're doing it on an ongoing basis, there's a, uh, and you stick with us month after month, all of our business, I haven't mentioned to this point, is a subscription basis, which is we believe that Good content marketing happens consistently month over month. And so one is you accept your content and you're, and you're using our platform actively. And the second is just how engaged you are. Are you giving the feedback? And uh, how many posts are you accepting versus declines? So it's kind of a, if the clients stick with us and they keep buying content and they keep engaging more, things are going really well, but it's not as beautifully black and white as, uh, as many platform executives would like to see.
1: But I think that's important because even the notion that you said, "Well, I have to answer this for both sides of the market, and this ladders back up to where this question came from, which is how do you balance the like the mechanic of what you charge the customer versus what you charge or what you pay out to your contractors, because I think it comes back to like what you're trying to figure out is your brand promise, and are you delivering on that because yes I do believe and there's evidence of many different types of platforms, whether it's content or otherwise, where how they qualify success is not necessarily like successful jobs done. It's quantity of jobs done, knowing that 30% of them are going to be crap and we're just going to deal with that, but we're just going to keep filling the funnel to overcompensate for that. Um, and, And they may not think about, in terms of how do they qualify success, they may not even have in their consideration set what a success look like for the labor side of our marketplace. So I, I share that to say, I think it speaks to where you guys are trying to, where you are and the direction you move as a brand at the end of the day, which is premium offering, um, not just to your customers, but to your writers as well.
2: Yes, man, you nailed it. That's exactly it. It's, uh, I think that's where most companies go. And I think, uh, It really helps if you come from the perspective of both sides to make it work.
1: Let's begin our wrap up. Where can our listeners learn more about Verblio, learn more about you, Steve, and find you both online?
2: A few places. So we're at Verblio.com V E R B L I O.com. We try to make the site as fun and engaging as possible. So please spend some time there. I am available on LinkedIn at Verblio.com. it's Steve Pakross. I post a lot of things there if you're looking for other content. And I also host a podcast called The Verblio Show, uh, which you can find iTunes, Spotify, or everywhere where I interview interesting marketers along the way and try to get uh, insights and inspiration for other marketers.
1: To wrap up, we will give each give our top one or two lessons or takeaways based on our conversation today. I'll go first, then I'll toss it to you. The topic today was scaling a labor-driven marketplace um to me i think one of the biggest takeaways i got out of this was the importance of i'll say understand what service are you trying to deliver what output are you trying to deliver as a step one essentially what is the brand promise up front because i think that dictates a lot of the decisions moving forward and then with that comes okay assuming you're trying to create something that's not just bad quality work but you keep getting paid for it be respectful and take care of the labor side of the market. Uh, Don't just only think about the customer side. Steve, top one or two lessons or takeaway?
2: Cool. I think mine is, uh, I haven't thought a lot about starting the marketplace in a really long time. I've only thought about (laughs) how to scale it from where I'm at, which is a really good point. So getting back to the basics of what would you do if you were starting a marketplace and what would you do as a business if you're starting your content marketing plan now? Uh, I need to spend some more cycles getting back to the, uh, to the basics.
1: My final question, which is how we end every episode on the show. Fill in the blank, Steve. Entrepreneurship is blank.
2: (laughs) It's funny because I listened to this so many times and I still don't have a good (laughs) (laughs) it. Oh, entrepreneurship is a very overblown word for wanting to build a business.
1: (laughs) I like that a lot. Entrepreneurship is a very overblown word for wanting to build a business that'll look great on the, uh, the social media tile we create and put out on Instagram and LinkedIn stuff afterwards. I love it. Uh, we had one answer uh, last season, which was entrepreneurship is very hard to pronounce. <laughs> or, sorry, very hard, very hard to spell, what it was.
2: <laughs> my, my follow-up question was going to be in serial entrepreneurship is a word for failed multiple times and now seems to be getting it right.
1: <laughs> I like that a lot. He is Steve Pockross, the CEO of Verblio, uh, a company that I may end up being a customer of in the near future. So thank you for sharing everything about Verblio today and your expertise on scaling up marketplaces. Steve, thank you so much for joining and kicking off episode one of the new season, season 15 of Startup Highland Podcast.
2: It has been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast, is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea, and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guests for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hypeman, the podcast. I'll catch you next week, but in the meantime, word up, raise up.